Uh, we're actually in for kind of a rare and awesome treat. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Chris Nye from the Portland area, is here to teach for us a little bit about him. He and I connected, it was like almost 15 years ago or so, um, we bumped into each other at like 20, as, at like 20 years old uh, in Bible college and sort of lost contact. But a couple of years ago, we reconnected at a pastor's conference, and I'm just so delighted to see uh, a, a friend uh, who is faithfully following Jesus in his pastoral vocation. He's an incredible thinker, an incredible man of God, and um, he's in, in the Portland area, but was visiting out here and agreed to come and teach for us, which I'm so excited about. Um, he's also working on his doctorate of ministry, which is as impressive and cool as it sounds. Um, and so um, we're going to have him teach here. So would you guys please put it together for our friend Chris Nye. All right. Thank you, man. Thanks for being here. Come on. All right. With that, you guys, would you also stand for our scripture reading? Today's reading comes from Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners take in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, River Bend. It is such a joy to be here. It's so fun to be in Bend. My family's just starting a little family trip and reunion over in Sun River. So I said, Andrew told me, anytime you're out here, let me know. So I let him know. And here we are. And it's always fun to see where everyone in Portland wants to move. Um, <laughs> it's a joy to be out here and to catch the vision. Um, for all of what you all have done to us and our lovely city, which sits on the other side of the mountains longingly, looking and saying, is there a land over there, milk and honey? And there is. I'm here, and I'm here to say, testify that it is. Andrew and I, we did meet 15 years ago, so crazy um, at, at Bible college. We were both commuters, and I, we were the only commuters, I felt like. And I saw this man with a lion's mane. I don't know. Have you shown pictures of yourself from back then? You've deleted? Okay, deleted them. Um, make him do that, because uh, I just was like, who is that lion that is here? Just a massive head of hair. And uh, yeah, fast forward 15 years, we kind of lose touch. And so many people, you know, I want to encourage you, Andrew, and, and just speak over your life, man. So many from that stage, 15 years, no longer serving in ministry, maybe no longer following Jesus, and just knowing that you're faithfully pastoring and preaching, and just want to encourage you, like, it was a joy to meet a year ago again and be like, oh, we're still in this, and we're locked in, and to encourage you guys, you know, anyone who walks with Jesus for a long time, um, the blessings of the fruit of the life of God. I hope this teaching can teach us and show us that life. And we just honor you, man, and honor this team that's here, honor this church for faithfully following Jesus. It was a joy to just see what this church has become here. And so let me pray just uh, one more time as we dive into the teaching this morning. God, 
how faithful you are. That you, um, yeah, planted this church years ago. That you are bearing fruit in Bend. That there's actually fruit here that we have yet to see too. (laughs) How cool is that? That actually maybe there's a, a harvest coming that would be beyond our expectations. Well, today, Lord, we just want to receive the word planted into our life. Today, we want to nurture the fruit growing in our life. We want to water whatever you're producing and growing. And we want to faithfully receive from you. And so uh, that requires you, God. I can't do that. I can't manufacture that. You, Holy Spirit, are going to be the one that speaks. You, God, are going to be the one who plants the gospel into our life this morning. And you, God, are going to be the one who receives the glory, the honor, and and praise. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen? Amen. Psalm chapter 1, if you have the Bible open already from the reading, um, this is not only just chapter 1 of the Psalms, but throughout time in history, it's been seen as kind of the rubric of the Psalms, or it's been seen as like the preface to the Psalter, which is another way to talk about the book of the Psalms. 150 of them, many of the earliest interpreters of this passage, the early church fathers, they called it the rubric or the guide of the whole Psalter because they said, you can't really understand the whole book you're getting into unless you really read this first one, and some of them argued the second Psalm as well, Psalms 1 and 2, to kind of intro you to the whole thing. And Psalm 1, this is why it's important to get Psalm 1, if you're going to get the rest of the 149 of them, is that it opens with a promise. It tells you what will happen if you remain rooted in what this book is all about, which is about life in God. You know, the Psalms are interesting, right? Because they are God's word to us. It is in your Bible. It's God's word to us. But it's one of the only books that's filled the entire thing with our words to God. It's a two-way book. But Psalm 1 opens with a one-way promise, right? From God saying, blessed are these kinds of people. Blessed are these kinds of people. It opens with a promise and a choice. Uh, you saw, you know, heard in the scripture reading very Bible-y words in there, did you not? Uh, righteous, wicked, you know, blessed. This promise is about a choice of those who choose the path of righteousness. The promise is that they will receive this thing called a blessing. Now, that's a strange word that we barely use anymore when we sneeze, that's about it, right? But the term blessed is a rich word in Hebrew and in New Testament Greek. It's all throughout your Bible. In fact, you know, the Psalms not only say that we can receive a blessing, but in Psalm 103, we bless the Lord, it says, right? Or you sing that song today, bless the Lord, O my soul. What are we doing? What are we doing when we're blessing? What is happening to us when God is blessing us? It's been translated so many different ways. I like what Scott McKnight, a a, a theologian, says. He says it's the happiness and the flourishing of a good life. It's also been said that it's kind of a divine congratulations, or Ray Ortland talks about it being a divine kind of pat on the back, like when you were a kid or something and a coach or a a, a dad or someone patted you on the back and said like, good job, keep going, you're headed in the right direction. I think that's the kind of thing that's happening with a blessing, a congratulatory, you're headed in the right direction. When we bless God, we say, God, you're the direction, you're the way we wanna go. God, we bless your name. And when God blesses us, he says, this is the right direction. You're headed in the right direction. I like to think about it that way. 
I am blessed and I am receiving that good life from God when I'm walking in his ways. And I can have rest and peace when I'm walking in his ways. And I want to encourage you today because this is a passage for you, Riverbend, that, that as you receive it, I want you to receive that divine kind of pat on the back, that you are headed in the right direction. The choice, though, you know, this psalm is, is, a, is, is a warning of sorts, that you don't naturally just go down this route, this path of blessing. It juxtaposes these two ways, righteousness and wickedness. And again, these are very bible words. Righteousness, though, as understood in the Old Testament, is really about right-relating, right-relating, right relationships between you um, and yourself, you and others, you and God, and even you and the rest of creation, that actually right relationships form the righteous life. And the psalmist is going to talk about how that kind of life that is rightly related to God, rightly related to a neighbor, rightly related with yourself and the rest of creation, that's the kind of life that just will last a long time. In fact, you can even look at this psalm carefully and realize it's talking about eternity. That's the kind of life that is planted and lasts forever. The wickedness is the the opposite of this. This is the person who departs from God's ways and is irrelated to God and irrelated to neighbor. You'll notice in the passage there is talk of like scoffing and mocking. Other words we don't really use all that much. But these are words about poor relationships, right? And moving out from under God's wisdom and away from God's ways. And and the argument of this psalm today is that that is the life that just won't last. It will not last. Those who stay in right relationship with God, self, others, the rest of creation, when we're staying rightly related to God, life lasts. When we don't, life withers. Christianity, I think, it can get a little confusing sometimes. I grew up uh, around the Catholic Church, and um, when, for all the beauty of the liturgy and even the wisdom of that tradition, and um, some amazing brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, I'm not Catholic for many reasons, but one of the things that got confusing when I was growing up in the Catholic Church was that it, Christianity seemed to me about being right or wrong and doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. And if I did the right thing, thumbs up. If I did the wrong thing, thumbs down, things were going bad. And then when I came into the evangelical world and the more Protestant side of things and I got saved and experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit, for all of the amazing inductive Bible studies I was a part of and great youth groups and amazing things in the world of Protestantism, I think the church can often get confused that Christianity is all about who's in and who's out. And we make the gospel about this fence that we put up and we say, let's get inside here and make sure we're going to heaven and that the rest of the world comes inside of the fence. And it's all about who's in and who's out. The temptation of the church is to distort what the psalmist is saying. And the temptation of my life has been to kind of have a distortion of in and out or right or wrong. Actually, Psalm 1, it's a wonderful uh, confronting of that in my life. Psalm 1 confronts me. Psalm 1 says, Chris, God is trying to save your life, actually. It's not necessarily about who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. It's what lasts and what doesn't. What will explore the glories of heaven on the other side of this current earthly life and what won't? What will last and what will wither? That really is the question. And all of us, whether you're a Christian today or not, are trying to build a kind of life that will last. Maybe that's why you moved to Bend. 
You're like, there's more sunshine out here. I'll live longer, you know? <laughs> we over in Portland are going to die young. I don't know. It's just raining. It's probably raining there right now. I don't even know. The psalmist is, at, is, is joining your question. What kind of life is going to wither into oblivion? What kind of life is going to flourish into the glories of heaven? It took me a while through my story of Christianity and the Catholic Church and even in young evangelical youth groups, it took me a long time to realize this very, very simple fact. Jesus Christ is trying to save your life. And every word he gives you is a life-saving word. To try to extend your life into what he, he called eternal life. So my friends, let's look at this, a life that withers and a life that fades. The life that withers is the first part, because actually you'll notice in Psalm 1 it says, blessed is the one who does not, it starts with a negative, blessed is the one who does not do these things. And it's this agricultural metaphor, which maybe you all over here in Bend are more comfortable with, but I live in inner east side Portland, and so I have to do a lot of studying about these agricultural metaphors in scripture. I don't really farm. I've got a few things in a garden, but that's about it. But these agricultural metaphors that are in Psalm 1, they, they are so important. And throughout your New Testament, they are so important. They cannot be exchanged for technological metaphors. We've got to keep them in the agrarian form that they're in in Scripture. It's important because the metaphors tell us this is a gradual process. This life that withers and the life that does not is a gradual process. So again, my temptation of thinking a light switch for, for Christianity that you're in and out or, or right or wrong is maybe going to be challenged here as I read this text because I'm learning, okay, this scripture is about a gradual process, a life that withers and fades away and a life that actually will last. One of the earliest and, and, and best interpreters of this passage is St. Augustine. He was living in the 300s, a bishop in northern Africa, an early church father, and he wrote a sermon on pretty much every single psalm, and on Psalm 1, they're collected in this little book, on Psalm 1, he tells us this. He says, the order of the words must be considered in this passage. Notice the words. What are they? They are, walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of the sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Watch this. He says, notice the gradual nature of these words, walking, standing, and sitting. The blessed person is being warned to stay away from this type of gradual move. Walk. Think about how that is. Now think about how you stand, and then you sit. You see, wickedness is not something you just jump into. Wickedness in the scriptures is something you are walking in, this step with the wicked, then you stand, and then you sit. And Augustine says, pay attention to that, because the, the life that withers is a gradual one. He starts with this idea of keeping unhealthy company. Don't walk in the step of the wicked, or another translation says, walk in the counsel of those departing from God. So a life that withers, we might pull a couple of things from this gradual text here. The first is they're walking and keeping unhealthy company. The way of 
the sinners in step with the wicked, they're kind of alarming to our ears maybe right now. We think, gosh, that's harsh. But in Hebrew, these terms uh, invoke those who are directly opposed to God. They disregard him. They might even consider God a fraud. Psalm 1 here, it's sounding like this, this wisdom literature that it is to the Proverbs. The Proverbs are often telling us, avoid foolish people. It's a very simple proverb, but it's like, he who uh, walks with the wise becomes wise. That's a, song, that's a proverb. It's like, if you walk with wise people, you'll just find yourself to be wise. And Psalm 1 is saying, if you walk with fools and those departing from God, you will end up becoming foolish and those departing from God. And perhaps here, it's just important for us to remember what it is we're doing here at River Bend, right? We are doing a community thing, a thing that takes all of us together, that actually just by going to church, this is crazy, but there are statistics that just by going to church, like your anxiety, your social anxiety, your, um, you know, even, even like uh, your ability to fall into depression, uh, that kind of stuff slowly can start to dissipate. The statistics start to change when you just join a local community that you show up to once a week. You might not even serve, you might not even give, although you should serve and you should give, but by just showing up, you might be saving your life. By just showing up, to church you might be because you're keeping a different company so long as you're out of i mean in this era too i think in the 21st century where like good church attendance is like once every six weeks i want to challenge us in this new era i think about this i have a three and a half year old son you know my wife and i are thinking about rhythms for our life and stuff just going to church going to church together is a beautiful witness to the world, but also a witness to your family, that, that you are staying in right relationship with God and with others. Uh, the psalmist is warning that not everybody, not everybody in this world are going to keep the rhythms that God's people keep. And so you've got to stay near God's people. But it also is not just, you know, staying away from an unhealthy company. You'll notice in that warning of a life that withers, it's also a life that adopts the world's devastating attitudes. You know, it talks about scoffers and mocking. We don't really use these words all that much. But in biblical terminology, these are those that are, I read one translation that said, incapable of disciplining their mind incapable of dis disciplining their mind. It says, don't walk in step with the wicked. Don't stay in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the company of mockers or scoffers, depending on your translation. These are attitude words. And the psalmist is saying, beware of adopting these devastating attitudes. Attitude is a very powerful thing, isn't it? You know, attitude is something that's like, at my church I was at previously, I was in the Bay Area for, for uh, seven years, and I was pastoring there in the South Bay in Northern California, and we had this phrase we used all the time, and a lot of churches use it, but like, we're not just taking the temperature, we're setting the temperature, and we always talked about that with attitude. Like, have you ever been working on a team, and one person is just the downer, and it just moves the whole team there, you know? Or like you're a part of a small group and there's always somebody who's just dismissing everything. And it's like, man, we can never really gain track. The power of a bad attitude is in incredible. But the power of an attitude that is against that bad attitude and is hopeful in the gospel and hopeful in Jesus, 
Man, psalmist is saying, beware of adopting the devastating attitude of that disposition that your heart's temperament is scoffing and mocking. You know, scoffing and mocking, it's like the primary dialect of the English internet right now. That is like what we speak. And I think the church is tempted to join that attitude of becoming cynical, becoming, um, like distancing ourselves from certain cultural things and critiquing them, and just seeing ourselves as kind of the arbiters of what's good and what's bad, because that's so promoted on the internet. Like, to be somebody who can, like, make fun of something or cynically have a cynical take on something, that's the language that gets the retweets, that's the language that gets the shares on Instagram, that's the kind of vibe on the internet that's rewarded. But the church is told, and God's people is told, that's a life that withers, that, that is a life that will end up fading away. And scoffing is sneaky, you guys. It doesn't just mean like you're, you're boldly, cynically posting stuff online. I've noticed in my own heart, it starts with an arrogance. It starts with a, well, actually before an arrogance, it starts with a distance. That once you're far away from someone or something, you can start to critique it. It's in relationship that the criticism and the cynicism starts to fade away. But it, this kind of thing appears in seed form. You know, sometimes it starts simply with your belief that you know better, or you're scrolling and you just, it's a roll of the eyes. You know what a scoff is? It sounds like this. That's what it sounds like. Come on, you know. And isn't that rewarded in our culture today? It's even rewarded in a kind of Christian culture. It, 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 it actually grieves my heart that that is something that the church is tempted to do. You know, I remember, um, I don't know if you guys have followed, since February, um, the Asbury revival kind of broke out in Kentucky, and like a lot of us churches were praying that God would continue to bring revival, and I think God is doing something. I legitimately think that God across Gen Z in particular, like the younger generation, that God is up to something new, especially in this like post-pandemic era we're kind of entering in, I think God's people are being revived. But I also see the people of God critiquing that very revival. And you know what I've been thinking about? I've been thinking, some won't get it. Some will look at it and critique the movement and miss the movement. I don't want to be one of those people. And I, 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 don't, I don't think churches like that will survive because they'll be stuck critiquing the move of God instead of going, God, where are you moving? I'm saying that freely here because I know what this church is all about. This church is all about joining God in the renewal of all things, joining God in the revival that he's bringing. But beware, if revival is coming, will we as older generations be able to receive it? That's what Psalm 1 is asking me. Are you gonna stand in the seat of mockers and critique a movement, or will you be humble enough to join it? Well, that's the life that lasts. You know, he says, blessed is the one who's not in this space and not adopting devastating attitudes, but a life that lasts. Look at verse two. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on God's law day and night. What is the law? We think of the law as moral instruction, but a life really that lasts, it understands and cherishes God's word, work, and ways. And that's what I mean about even revival. Like, one who is blessed is going to look at any outbreaking of the Holy Spirit and go, 
Sure, it's not perfect, but every outbreaking of the Holy Spirit involves some mess of human involvement. But I'm going to look at that and I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask that the Lord would bring that to my church and I'm going to ask that God would bring that to my family and I'm going to humbly submit to God's Holy Spirit. It's, it's larger than moral instruction. A life that really lasts is one that's cherishing God's word, work, and ways, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You know that word, law, in this scripture is the word Torah. You know where that comes from? That's the word that was used, yes, to describe the moral instruction of God's people, the Ten Commandments, all of those things. If, if you were reading Psalm 1 as an ancient Israelite, you would certainly go, oh, my delight is in the Ten Commandments. But you would also think... My delight is in the Torah. My delight is in the first five books of the Bible. That's the, that's the Pentateuch or the Torah is described in those first five books of the Bible. So it's not just my delight is in the law of the Lord and moral instruction, although it certainly was. But my delight is in the law of the Lord to talk about the great things God did in the patriarchs. My delight is in the, the, what did God do in Abraham? Oh, I delight in that. What did God do in Moses when he, the sea was split and the people walked there? Oh, man, what did God do in the book of Numbers? What did God do throughout all of time and space? God is working his will, and I delight in that. That's the kind of life that lasts. Look at Bonhoeffer, another amazing interpreter of this psalm. He says this, under law, when he describes law, it's to be understood this way, the entire salvation act of God and the direction for a new life in obedience. I love that. The entire salvation act of God and the direction for a new life of obedience. It is grace to know God's commands because God's commands and his acts in history are kind of two hands on the same body. The entire salvation act of God and a new life of obedience. A life that lasts is one that is delighting and meditating on all God has done all that he currently is doing, and all that we pray he does in the future. That kind of life will last. That's the righteous person's desire who's rightly related to God and others. That's the life that lasts. Well, I don't know about you, huge problem with that for me. What happens if that is not my delight? Because you might be sitting here and you might be going, yes, that is my delight. But if you've lived long enough in God, you'll know we don't wake up every day delighting in God's ways. We don't wake up every day thinking that God's word is the thing that we want to be obsessed with. But notice in this passage, it says, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. When I first read this psalm, I thought about those phrases sequentially. I delight in the law of the Lord, and then because I'm delighting in it, I meditate on it day and night. You know, maybe you've thought about that before. So really, the problem is always in my desires, right? Am I desiring God's, God's word? And that's certainly one way life works, but the more I've studied this and the more I've considered this, perhaps it's not sequential delight to meditating day and night on the, on, the, on the word. Maybe it's not sequential, but maybe it's cyclical. What do I mean by that? Maybe one leads to the other. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about desire and discipline. Desire is delighting in the law of the Lord. Discipline, meditating on it day and night. Oftentimes we think, I just need to get excited about God's word so I can read it every day. Well, I've tried that for a long time, and it's really, I run out of gas quickly. 
I think it's more of a circle that oftentimes my, I do desire that, and it does lead me to meditate day and night. But other times, my friends, I just got to meditate on it day and night, whether I feel like it or not. And that drives me back to the desire. It's not sequential, it's cyclical. It works more as an interrelationship between my delight in the law of the Lord and my discipline to meditate on it day and night. When I truly desire, I discipline myself, but also what I discipline myself in, I truly desire. You know this. You live in Bend. You ski probably, you know? You love to ski, and then you get better at skiing, right? Or you just get, you know, your parents forced you to ski, and then you turned out to love it. It's a cyclical relationship, you know? Diet, same thing. Oh, so much of life works this way. I learned this most when I was in the Bay Area. I worked in the inner, inner city of San Francisco, pastoring this little church and working in this ministry in the Tenderloin District. Dark area, one square mile, um, tons of poverty, tons of addiction. Tons of addiction. And in that context and in another ministry context um, where I, I, I got exposed to celebrate recovery, which is kind of like an AA um, in the church. It kind of takes gospel language and, and helps people in addiction and recovery. And in the Tenderloin in the inner city of San Francisco and through Celebrate Recovery and, and just understanding addiction, I myself have never struggled with addiction, but I've been fortunate to pastor and shepherd people who have. And they tell me that the journey of sobriety is often the cyclical relationship of desire and discipline, that there are many days they desire to stay sober. And that leads to the discipline, which is sobriety. Sobriety is a discipline to reject certain things for the sake of your health and the sake of your relationships. They say there's days where they desire the sober life, therefore they are sober. But there are so many days where they're tempted to fall in and it's the discipline of sobriety that leads to the delight of sobriety. This is what it's like sometimes in God's word is you may have learned this in all of different kinds of ways, but remember your faith is not a stagnant intellectual enterprise. It is also not an emotional enterprise that must be driven purely by your own excitement. That actually God is working in a way he told you he would work when he gave you his greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your emotions, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, your will. There will be times you will have to will it out. And God's spirit is involved in the discipline and the desire that one day you might feel discouraged and God would give you a burst of emotional energy. And then there's times God is gonna be slowly speaking through you, through your faithful waking up and opening the word and saying, God, I'm here, speak to me. Your prayer walking, praying for your family, God will slowly speak to you in your desire, God will slowly dis uh, speak to you in your discipline because in those two things, your desire and your discipline, God is actually making something in you. You know what he's doing? He's producing righteousness in you. That's what starts to happen because this is what the words, uh, this is what uh, the psalmist says. That person, verse three, that person who's delighting and meditating day and night, that person, verse three, they are like a tree which yields fruit in its season. Another reason we have to keep these agricultural metaphors in scripture is the righteous life is a life of seasons 
And just like the life that withers, I told you that's gradual, the righteous life is gradual as well. Just like the one that's fading, and, and you know, the psalmist says it's like chaff, which, again, I'm not a farmer. I don't know what that is. I had to look it up, but it's casing around a plant, and it just falls away, and it, it goes to oblivion. It dies off. Just like that process is gradual, the process of growing a tree, again, something I've never done, but I'll take a stab at it. I think it takes a long time. Um, life in God and the righteous life takes a long time. It is a gradual process. And note what it says. The person's like a tree. I love this phrase in Psalm 1-3. Verse 3 says, it yields its fruit in its season. Um, I think so many of us, we want a grocery store Christianity, you know? Oh, this is perfect right now, because last time I preached this, it was in February. It's summer now. Have you had a tomato? Have you had a tomato at a farmer's market? I mean, it's life-altering. It's a beautiful time to eat a tomato. <laughs> but you know what? You can go get a tomato in a grocery store anytime, anywhere, right? It's part of the problem with this world right now, right? It's like you can go get one in January at 2 a.m. at Safeway. It's not going to taste good, though, right? Here's what, I, here's what I, I think when I think about the yielding fruit in season. Like, as a, someone who walks with Jesus, and we want a grocery store Christianity, we want one where the fruit is always available and always ready anytime, any day. Why isn't there fruit in my life? How come God's not answering my prayers? How can we make these demands that we want the fresh fruit all year, all the time? But the psalmist never promises that. He doesn't say that the fruit's going to yield all the time. He says it's going to yield in its season. And I think I was praying for you guys this morning. I think somebody in here needs to know that not bearing fruit it's not necessarily a sign you're disconnected from Christ. It might be, you gotta inspect that in community, you gotta inspect that in prayer. It might be that you're disconnected from Christ, but it actually might mean you're connected to Christ. You're just not in the season of producing fruit. Talk to anyone who has followed Jesus for 20 years or more. I say 20 years is a catch-all, I don't know, maybe 15. You need decades with the Lord though. To know this, there's seasons where the tree is planted, but it's winter. You're not going to get the fruit. You know, the, the tomatoes are not available. They're not available. But we live in a world, and I think we live in a Christian culture, where it's like every Sunday has to be amazing, and every church service, God has to speak to me, and every time I share the gospel, it has to go well, and every time I pray, I have to have it answered. And we want to be people of faith, but we want to be people... True faith is one who waits on the Lord. I love what Michael and Grace were sharing up here, right? Of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. Could it be that the very season of waiting is the way in which God will produce the fruit? Because we know this from the metaphor. There just isn't fruit unless it's planted by the streams. Not bearing fruit. You might be in a season of wintering, and God is here to tell you, stay rooted, stay rooted. Because notice what the passage is obsessed with is not the, the, the fruit that is produced. The passage is obsessed with where is this tree planted? Where is this tree planted? So long as it's planted by the streams of living water, the life that lasts is really one that's rooted in Jesus Christ. 
here's how I know. The truth is, throughout all the Bible, righteousness, um, throughout all the Bible, righteousness is something that no person ever attains apart from God. In other words, there's no one in the Bible that's described as righteous who isn't connected to the living God, okay? All of them are righteous because God named them as such. Noah was righteous because he, quote, walked with the Lord in Genesis 6. Emphatically in Deuteronomy 9, God tells, this is a funny passage, God tells the people of Israel, it is actually precisely not because they are righteous that he's going to choose them. He's like, there's nothing in you that's special. I just chose you, and the reason you are special is because my righteousness is imputed to you. I'm calling you righteous, that's why. You know? And this translates to today. In our life with Jesus, Abraham was counted as righteous because he had faith in God. And the primary feature of a righteous life is someone in relationship with the righteous one. And we know his name. Now we know his name. Now we saw him walk in human form. And I mentioned earlier Augustine, who interpreted this passage, that great North African bishop. He sees Jesus all over this text. He says this, who, he argues, who is the one you think about when you think about someone amongst mockers? Who's the one that you think about who stood in the way of sinners, but in a different way? One who didn't stand in the way of sinners to join them, but who stood in their path to break it off and to change their direction? Who's the one who sat amongst the thieves? Who's the one who stood in wickedness so we don't have to stand in it anymore? Jesus is the one who sat mocked. Jesus was not mocking, but mocked on our behalf. Jesus stood in the place of sinners without becoming a sinner himself. He did not sin, but he became the punishment for us. God placed himself where we are told to never go. And he said, I'll hold the line here. I'll cut off this path so that you can find the righteous path all the easier. God comes to us in Christ and stands literally in the way of sinners so we don't have to. He comes now to provide for us the very rivers of living water the tree says is planted by. John chapter 4, Jesus says, rivers of living water will flow from you. Without Jesus, there is no route to righteousness. With him, all of us can take it. Because that tree is planted by the water, the branch is connected to the vine. And so now, reading Psalm 1 once again, but we read it forwards into the life of Christ, we see it with so much greater clarity, don't we? It's actually the life connected to Christ that grows into heaven's gardens. The life disconnected from Christ is the one that withers into oblivion. People of all kinds of motives and behaviors and desires and disciplines can come to the one who, through Planting yourself in him will change your existence forever. He's trying to save your life. All of us in this room, we all live from somewhere, a great premise upon which we build our whole lives. You might think you're living your life for a kind of self-actualization to find yourself, to grow yourself, to know yourself. Some of you might be living for a career or a particular business pursuit. We all live from, from somewhere. Maybe you're living from a great wounding in your childhood of the way that your father or your mother treated you and you're not gonna be that way and you're gonna be better. This psalmist is a gentle reminder. Beware where you plant your roots. Because all of those things might be honorable. 
but will they create a kind of life that lasts? The invitation of the psalm is to make the living God through Jesus Christ the premise upon which you build the rest of your life, to sink your roots deeply into his streams of living water, to desire him and to discipline yourself in that stream because Jesus himself made this invitation and this connection to Psalm 1 clearest in John 15. You know this passage. I am the vine, he says. You are the branches. Remember in this metaphor who you are. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But look at this crazy line. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Someone gave me that verse when I was young in ministry once, and it changed my life. Just apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me, you are like a branch. Or if you, if you do not remain in me, you are like the branch that is thrown away, and there's that word, just connecting us to Psalm chapter one. It withers if you do not remain in me. Later in verse 10, Jesus says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And there it is again, our beautiful connection of desire and discipline. Discipline, keep my commandments. The desire, you'll be in my love. See, abiding and obeying and desire and discipline, they work in the same way. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will have my love. And suddenly the stress of religion is like relieved. It washes away when I read these words to realize Jesus, in this passage, he puts himself in the place of the Torah. He puts himself in the place of the law of the Lord. And he says, I'll fulfill it and stand in that spot so that your delight and your discipline and your desire and your duty will be focused not on instruction, but on a person. I'll place myself there and you abide in my love and you will bear fruit if you are abiding in my love. Maybe you're like me and sometimes you get stressed about God's nearness into your life. You're so concerned about am I feeling close to God or far from God and Jesus simplifies it and says, walk in my ways, you are abiding in my love. The rhythms that you're stepping in through, prayer and Sabbath and hospitality and all of the things that Scripture's commanding you to do are just ways to remind yourself, oh, wow, I'm planted by nourishing rivers. Wow, I'm a branch on a beautiful tree that is Christ. And the rest and the peace that comes from that life, I told you, Psalm 1, it has a promise, blessed is this person, but it also has a choice. The promise of blessing is for those who choose righteousness in Jesus Christ. The great surprise of Christianity is that choosing righteousness is not about choosing a lifestyle. It's not about choosing a philosophy. It's not about choosing behavior modification. It's about choosing fellowship. Fellowship with a living being, a living person, choosing fellowship with Jesus Christ and looking at his streams of living water and saying, there's my roots. I shall plant myself there. As those planted are those who stay in Christ and live there for a long time. I want to close this way. I think some, some of us, uh, maybe you've never planted your roots, and it's time to plant your roots near the righteous one. And through prayer and worship and response, it's time to say to God, I'm planting my life near you and in you. But I also, you know, heard this metaphor about uh, transplanting plants, right? 
sometimes the root systems get so uh, discouraged and and deadly that the plants need to be moved back into a place of nourishing. And maybe that's you, coming to Christ and transplanting your roots. But remember either way, like a branch connected to a vine, like a tree planted by streams of water, life in God, the righteous life, is the one who is connected to God in this way. And so River Bend Church, you are headed in the right direction. You are headed in a a life of blessing so long as you stay rooted in Christ. I'll close with Psalm 112 um, to have us think towards communion. It says this, surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They'll last forever. This is another Psalm, 112 chapters later. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. And so, friends, we come to communion and we take the bread and the cup because we remind ourselves of what he has done, not what we have done or will do. And we remind ourselves of where are we planted. Jesus said the night he was betrayed, he gave this meal to his friends and he said, do this in memory of me. He didn't say do this in the hopes that you'll think about ways to be better. He said, do this in the memory of my death and my resurrection, the bread symbolizing the body broken, the cup, the blood shed for us. These are the very means in which we are even seeing this psalm in a new way and allowed to be planted in such a way. And so, friends, I felt when I was praying for you, somebody needs this image of a tree because you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling like a wintering season, or you've realized you've built your life on a premise that just won't last. And so, my friends, may we receive this word and receive this communion as we feel led that we would be brought to God's reality and his Holy Spirit, that rooted in Christ, abiding in Christ, is abiding in his love. Let me pray for you. Oh, God, we do need you. And we're thankful, God, for a fresh metaphor from your word about a tree. And Lord, I pray that however this landed with anybody here, that your Holy Spirit right now would be activating our hearts. God, I pray for remarkable encouragement that only comes from your Holy Spirit. I pray for a shocking uh, moment of revelation for some of us today. Oh, this is what I need. Oh, this is my faith. Oh, Lord, only you can do that. And we submit and yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit. Spirit, lead us, guide us, and thank you for the bread and the cup. We pray in Christ's name.